trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 47 state bars, LawPay. Do you hate Sunday evenings because you have to go back to work on Monday? Unfortunately, that's a sentiment of a fair amount of lawyers, but it doesn't have to be that way. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, I'm speaking with Nancy Levitt, a professor and associate dean at the University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Law, who's also written multiple books about how lawyers can find happiness and fulfillment in their practices. Welcome to the show, Professor. Thank you so much. If you are a lawyer that you just really don't like Sunday nights because you're dreading going back to work in the morning, based on the work you've done on attorneys finding happiness, what kind of tips do you have about how you can set up your weekend so that when Monday comes around, you're ready? One of the things I would caution at the start is if you're in a job where you are dreading going to work, you might step back and revisit whether you are in the right job. People who are lawyers can have multiple different practice areas, and they might initially think that they gravitate toward litigation, but they might be happier doing transactional work. They might think that they enjoy estates and trusts, but then they realize they don't care who gets the stuff. So if there is Monday morning dread, my first question is whether this is the right gig. There are certainly things that lawyers can do to find more happiness at work. One of the first things, and it's something people might not immediately think about in relation to work, is the quality of relationships that are afforded by the job. Relationships are really important. They might be the single most important component in happiness and relationships are found in workplaces as well as in your home or your social life. Socializing is one of the activities that makes people the happiest and people tend to match and to mirror the emotions of other people around them. So I'm sure you have a Debbie Downer. Uh, might be in your law firm, might be in your family, the person who gleefully finds the negative in any situation and then infects you. Lawyers can spread unhappiness like cold germs, but the flip side of that's true as well, that happiness is contagious and you can catch it. So hanging out around the people who are generally more positive can have positive moods transfer between people and even spread throughout a group. That's really, yes, I think that's a really important thing to point out. I'm going to ask you, how would you tweak that advice for a lawyer who is an introvert? There's a wonderful book and podcast by Susan Cain called Quiet about the power of being an introvert and about how introverts relate to other people. Introverts aren't necessarily people who sit by themselves in a room. They may like being around other people, but not just volubly participating. So even introverts can hang out around other people. Interestingly, more lawyers are extroverts than are introverts, but certainly there can be folks who are introverts and who are lawyers. 
In one of your books, you talk about being genuine to your true self. And the example you used is that somebody might prefer to drink Budweiser at a party, but he or she thinks that he'll get laughed at if he drinks Budweiser. And so he orders a Pinot Noir. Can you elaborate on that? I thought that was a great example, but can you tell me more about how being your authentic self figures in with your happiness as a lawyer? Sure. And we didn't mean to be completely flippant in our example. Lawyers are usually the people who were students who worked for gold stars. Very often they were the ones who grew up coloring within the lines. They tend to be people in law school who follow the institutional glide path, the idea that happiness comes from having superb grades, being on law review, grabbing the brass ring of working for a large firm. Those aren't bad things, but they're not for everybody. So figuring out what people want to do, figuring out the match between your skills and your abilities and the challenges of work that you like, what's the flow that works for you, is what we meant by being genuine people are happier if they are doing the kind of work they like, if it's work that gives them some autonomy, some control, if it's work that matters to other people. So that's what we meant by being genuine, not necessarily picking the job that earns the most money or the job that has the largest name cachet. Okay. And I want to go back to something you said about figuring out the workflow that works for you. Do you have advice for lawyers on really tuning into that and perhaps advocating for themselves in certain situations about what works for them and what doesn't in terms of workflows in the office? The ability to advocate for oneself varies among jobs, of course, and varies given the setting one is in, good managers will recognize that people will perform better if they are not completely overwhelmed. Good managers will recognize that people will succeed if they are, if if the skills and the abilities and the type of work are a good match. We interviewed quite a number of people for our original book, The Happy Lawyer, more than 200 lawyers across the country. One of the stories that was told to us still resonates with me. It was a woman who was originally in transactional work, and she realized she was not having a good time. She was the one who dreaded going to work on Monday morning. She talked to her managers. She she switched into intellectual property. She then said she could work 17-hour days without blinking because she was so engaged in her work. So hopefully, hopefully they're understanding managers. I see. Another thing that it seems like a lot of different fields are talking about now is the idea of grit and growth mindset. It's been very popular, including in the legal profession. A lot of that discussion focuses on the grit aspect. How does a growth mindset figure in in terms of perhaps owning and learning from your mistakes rather than beating yourself up over it? How does that figure in for lawyer happiness? Sure. We're talking about different dimensions of sort of the same phenomenon. You, you may even remember Robert 
Persig and Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, he used the word gumption to describe a feeling of initiative that made persistence or, or sustained action in the face of challenges possible. The buzzword in educational circles is grit. Grit or gumption does for people what powder milk biscuits, Prairie Home Companion's longtime imaginary sponsor promises. It gives people the strength to get up and do what needs to be done. The growth dimension of it, you might even remember the marshmallow studies, 1960s, uh, Stanford psychologist Walter Mischel conducted studies about willpower. He rounded up a bunch of four-year-olds. He gave them two marshmallows and a choice. They could eat one marshmallow. Now, after ringing a bell, they could wait 15 minutes and they could eat both marshmallows. And you may know the outcome of this one. Years later, Mitchell tracked down hundreds of subjects in the marshmallow study to see how they fared in school and in life. And remarkably, the four-year-olds who managed to resist the marshmallows for the full 15 minutes went on to score an average of 210 points higher on SAT tests than those who caved in. In short, the study suggested that willpower was really a key to having a successful life. And then came the work of Stanford psychologist Carol Dweck. And her work focuses on the idea of a growth mindset, which is her term for a belief or a habit that contributes to better learning, better success on the job. People who have a growth mindset value their experiences rather than their outcome. Life isn't about winning or losing. It's about working hard and working on things that matter. People who have a growth mindset believe that their basic qualities are things that they can cultivate through their own efforts. People who have the opposite mindset, a fixed mindset, she calls it, believe that their abilities are inherent and, and can't be changed. And they tend to face a future of self-doubt or anxiety or limited achievement. I mean, as you might imagine, this two-mindset model is an oversimplification, but it provides a fairly useful way of thinking about how to become a more effective lawyer. Okay. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to talk about the never-ending quest for perfection that sometimes figures in with lawyers' unhappiness. Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those using traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can accept client payments online, via email, or in person, no equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com slash podcast to sign up and get your first three months free. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward. And on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, I'm speaking with Nancy Levitt about things that sometimes get in the way of lawyers enjoying their work and what they can do to change that. Um, Professor, sometimes I think people who are drawn to the profession of law are perfectionists. And sometimes that works out wonderful for people, but sometimes it can cause unhappiness as well. Do you have thoughts on if you have this never-ending quest for perfection in your life as an attorney, does that maybe get in your way of finding fulfillment? I think you're right about that. Most lawyers were the kids who succeeded. There are a lot of type A personalities in law. In fact, some lawyers make other type A personalities look like C pluses. <laughs> the Quest for perfection isn't a bad thing for representing a client, going to the mat, 
but not everything has to be perfect. The motion for extension of time doesn't have to be perfect. The interesting thing is there aren't that many metrics to judge how well lawyers are doing on routine matters. Sure, there are the wins and the losses, but lawyers might evaluate how they're doing by how much money they're making. And that's really one of the most pervasive and pernicious myths that a high-paying job leads to happiness. Mm. On the whole, for lawyers, for everybody else, money just doesn't have that much to do with happiness. There was um, a study by two Nobel Prize um, winners, Daniel Kahneman, Angus Deaton. They looked at results of Gallup polls, I think for about half a million Americans, and they found that if people are making, I think they said about $70,000 in, that would have been 2008, 2009, what would that be? $75,000. While more money might affect their perceptions of their own success, it doesn't have much effect on their day-to-day moods. The studies just show hardly any daily satisfaction differences between people who are in higher income brackets and those who are earning above, let's say, $75,000. But attorneys are so concerned about keeping up with each other. Relative income matters. Far more important for lawyers is how their salaries compare to people whom they perceive as peers. And so attorneys are concerned about keeping up with the Joneses or maybe in our case, the Jones days. <laughs> but in fact, that isn't what brings people happiness. And do you have thoughts about how a lawyer's personal life can prohibit his or her happiness with their work and how they can be, you know, really reflective and maybe make some changes um, or on, on that path? On the personal side, there are two things that seem to matter in terms of creating a positive outlook. One is about downward comparisons. One of the most important series of studies in the happiness literature has to do with perspectives. Researchers conducted interviews and surveys with Olympic medalists, and they made a surprising discovery that the bronze medalists were almost uniformly more satisfied for the rest of their lives than the silver medalists. The silver medalists, they kept looking upward in comparison, just a fraction of a second less. I would have had the gold. The bronze medalists, they looked downward. Hey, I made it onto the medal stand. Everyone else didn't. People are so much happier if they make downward rather than upward comparisons. And Mm. working in law firms tends to gear people toward making upward comparisons with the metrics of billable hours or salaries. There are actually a lot of ways of putting into practice the downward comparisons, like giving back with pro bono work, celebrating successes rather than ruining little losses. The second thing that matters a great deal in terms of outlook is being grateful. There's new material coming out in cognitive neuroscience about building new neural pathways with repeated patterns of action, either good neural pathways or bad. Have you ever played the video game Tetris? Oh, yes. Old school video gaming. Mm -hmm. Shapes fall from the top of the screen. You create the unbroken line across the bottom. The studies are fascinating about people who repeatedly play Tetris. And when they leave the game, they go outside, they see bricks falling into place. Researchers named this the Tetris effect, but it's not just Tetris. 
It's even Grand Theft Auto. I don't know if you've ever played that one. <laughs> Once. One, researcher, <laughs> one researcher reported that after a marathon session of playing Grand Theft Auto, he found himself examining the cars he passed outside as potential targets for theft, and he even imagined the theft of a Cambridge police cruiser. I could boost the cop car and get bonus points. The point is much larger, of course, than video gaming. You start seeing the world according to the framework of what you repeatedly do. And it's a question of what do you do to create the good neural pathways? One of my favorites is the three gratitudes exercise from Sonia Lubomirsky. At the end of the day, for about 12 weeks, write down three things for which you're grateful. You have to do it long enough to establish the pathway. I mean, let me do three attitudes for you. Okay. I'm very grateful to have the invitation to speak with you. You're a journalist. As I mentioned, I've admired for 15 years. I'm very grateful to be surrounded both at home and at work with people who are other directed and engaged and thoughtful. And third, I'm very grateful that the people who are listening are interested in the concept of happiness, or at least it seems to me that since we're recording that at least they're a civil and polite group. I'm happy either way. Mm -hmm. I can see where if you did that daily, it would probably make a great difference. It matters in terms of outlook. You start finding yourself during the day looking for things to fill in the three gratitudes slots mm -hmm. at night. That kind of leads to my next question. How does the way that a lawyer treats others figure in with his or her happiness? People reap what they sow. It's the same contagion idea we discussed earlier. When people treat other people in poor ways, combative ways, they tend to focus on the fight. When people look for the good, try to create a positive outcome for both sides, they feel like they're working toward a collaborative enterprise. Much happier way of existing. Got it. And if you were a manager and you manage lawyers, what advice do you have about a culture you can set or the role you can play in setting a culture that helps your lawyers be happy in their work? One of the things that matters most to career happiness is control, the degree of control within the job and mattering. We break these out separately in the book, but they're really interrelated. There, there are lots of facets of control. One branch might be self-explanatory, autonomy or freedom to arrange your day, doing the things you like to be doing. Another aspect of workplace control that's a little more subtle depends on believing that your contribution matters. Mattering matters. Mattering makes us happy. One of the best things that firms can do to promote lawyer happiness is to give lawyers a measure of control. Studies of attorney satisfaction show that if your job gives you significant autonomy, you're more likely to be happy. Conversely, satisfaction is lower if you're subjected to constraints on your decisions or your work setting or your circumstances. Helping both newer and more senior lawyers find control and find a match between what they're doing and what they want to be doing can certainly promote happiness. One of the other things that numerous firms across the country have been experimenting with is some form of flexible scheduling. There's hourly work. It certainly needs to be done. But the firms that are better at retaining lawyers are firms that don't view alternative time and salary arrangements as being perversely different. There was a 
managing partner at Dickstein Shapiro who said, I think I'm getting a, a quote here, we were losing lawyers, not to other law firms, but to other schedules. So making alternative work arrangements possible for every lawyer, uh, the national norm is that fewer of 6% of lawyers even have a reduced work hour schedule for reduced pay. And the majority of those people who do are, are women with children. But making those alternative work arrangements for possible for men or for women without children, without the stigma of assuming that they're less serious or less committed workers, would be a promising step. There's a law firm in uh, Cleveland, Tucker Ellis, that, that contacted us after we wrote The Happy Lawyer. And Tucker Ellis derives, at the time they contacted us, more than 60% of its revenue from billing arrangements other than by the hour. And they wrote to me about their firm philosophy, which was clients want to pay us for what we do, not how long it takes us to do it. So alternate billing arrangements can make both clients happy and as well as associates and partners. The last book that you wrote was a book you co-wrote, The Good Lawyer, in 2014, right? Yes. Well, I've, I've written a couple since then. So, Professor, you've written uh, many books on this topic and others. Do you have uh, plans for another book on the topic of lawyers and happiness in the near future? Two books are in the works, not directly on the topic, but sort of to the side. One is on a book on legal careers with Andrew McClurg. He's the author of One Ella of a Ride and Christine Coughlin. And it's about the wide range of things you can do with a law degree. The second book is called Beyond 1L, and it picks up where Scott Turow's 1L left off, and it looks at other people's stories of people who didn't go to law school 35 years ago, didn't go to Harvard, weren't white, weren't male, weren't straight, just other folks' stories about being happy in law school. I look forward to reading them both. And we're about out of time today. Do you have any final thoughts on this topic? One of the, there's one quote in our book. It's so simple, but it's so true. And it's what people seek from others more than anything else is attention and appreciation. So my encouragement is give that to the people in your lives. Hmm. Very good advice. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was wonderful speaking with you. Thank you, Stephanie. And listeners, thank you for joining us as well. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and we'll see you the next time for another episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered.